Ladies and gentlemen, this is David Miracatani with another episode of Matt Chat. Today I am joined by an NCAA finalist, an Olympic alternate, a multiple-time UFC champion, one of only three men to hold the UFC title at two different weights, a UFC Hall of Fame member, and probably most importantly, the owner of the best collection of copper mugs in the greater Las Vegas area, Mr. Randy Couture. Randy, how are you doing today? <laughs> I'm doing good, thanks. You like the last part of that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How's everything in Las Vegas, boss? Everything's good. It's uh, it's heating up a little early this year. We've been having some hot weather this week in June, and usually that doesn't happen until July. So been uh, been hot for sure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It was and it was great seeing you out in uh, in Vegas when the U.S. Open was out there. Um, told a lot of people you're going to be on the show, and everybody's really excited to hear from you. So I want to just jump right into it. Let's just start at the beginning. Tell me a little bit about your high school career and, and how you ended up going into the military versus going straight into college. Well, I, uh, I started wrestling in junior high school and rolled into high school. It was a three-year high school program in, in Seattle, north of Seattle, where I grew up. And uh, of 1981, my senior year, I ended up winning the state championship was the the first state champion in any sport from from my high school it was a fairly new high school um didn't really get any scholarship offers uh coming out of high school for college um uh, ended up walking on at washington state they still had a uh a program back then phil parker actually was the coach uh the program didn't last about another year they they dropped the program uh, within the following year, but uh, I ended up with a, with a kid on the way, and, and uh, thought the best thing for me to do was to join the service to support a new family. Um, so in 1982, I joined the army and, and spent six years in the army. Uh, pretty much thought wrestling was done for me at that point. As it turned out, uh, I wound up stationed in Germany and at, at the peak of the Cold War in, in Central Europe there's about 5 million soldiers stationed over there and they had huge sports programs to, uh, to boost morale and keep keep soldiers focused uh, and I ended up wrestling in the U.S. Army Europe Championships in 1983 and, and 84 and, and won uh, Greco and Freestyle Championships in 84 and got a chance to try out for the All-Army Wrestling Team in 1985, I made the All-Army Wrestling Team, and I spent the last four years of my enlistment uh, wrestling for the Army. And it was then, I think, that the college started scratching their head, going, who the hell is this kid, and where did he come from? <laughs> Realized I had four years of eligibility because I, I, I joined the service and stopped on matriculation. So the phone started ringing in uh, Oklahoma State was one of those calls. Actually, Tommy Chesbrook called me collect. <laughs> <laughs> Good thing you took the charges, huh? <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, Tommy wasn't the coach at that time, but he was certainly involved with the program and and helping recruiting and, and all those things. Uh, uh, Joe Say and, and Bruce Burnett were, were the kind of the new coaches trying to put together a a solid lineup and, and make it run at, at winning a national title. And uh, I was fortunate enough to be on those teams 
uh, in 88, 89, and 90 uh, that were that were national champions. Yeah, and I want to ask you about those teams, but, you know, obviously you and I have spoken privately about a lot of things, but t- tell me about your time in the Army just – because I, we're going to get into your, your foundation a little bit, but I know it, it had to have really impacted you because it continues to affect your life daily. So what about your time in the Army had such an impact on you? Well, I think the, those years, 18, you know, 18, 19 years old to, till I was 25 are pretty formative times in, in a guy's life. Uh, a lot of guys develop and, and develop their view of the world in college during that time frame, and, right. and for me, I was I was wearing a uniform and 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 indoctrinated into the service and signed on the dotted line to represent our country and in, in whatever happened. And uh, I think that uh, I, I look at the world in a particular way because of that time, because of the time I spent um, ma- having made that commitment. And obviously, it, it worked out well for me. I think during that time in the army, I realized. And develop the confidence that I could compete on an international stage. Uh, I don't think I really started to believe that I could win at that level until until I was wrestling at Oklahoma State. But I I started to believe I could at least compete during that time frame in the service. Uh, I had never wrestled Greco before uh, oh, until wow. I rolled in rolled into the army and and literally accidentally got put on the on the Greco bracket at a core championship. In Germany. What do you mean and, you know, accidentally? Started, How did that happen? <clears throat> well, I, I weighed in for the freestyle. They 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 put me on the freestyle bracket. Somebody put my name on the Greco bracket too. They ran the tournament simultaneously, so I walked off the freestyle mat and they started calling my name on, on up for a match on on a Greco mat. And I'm I ran over the head table. And I'm like, what the what the heck? I'm. He said, Well, you're on the bracket. Are you gonna wrestle or not? And I'm like, Well, all right, I guess I will. And, Did you know uh, the rules? I I mean I had a basic idea of what what was going on, um, <laughs> but I'd never done it before, and then I ended up winning the tournament, so I just <laughs> stuck with it. <laughs> that is awesome. <laughs> so you didn't you didn't get thrown on your head the first time, huh? That usually would no, happen to most I, uh, of us. <laughs> yeah, I, that year I ended up in the in the finals of the freestyle championships for U.S. Army Europe and the Greco championship for U.S. Army Europe. And I got tossed on my head in the, in the Greco finals. Uh, and, and that was the difference between getting to go that year and try out for the All-Army team. This was in 84. Right. And uh, uh, so I, I, Coach Coach Winter that year passed me over. I took second in the Greco. And, he, you know, he's a big Greco guy. Uh, it was a big push and, and focus on Greco-Roman wrestling and all the services. But uh, certainly Coach Winter was a Greco guy. And so... Uh, I didn't get a chance to try out that year. I just stayed in my unit and, and kept wrestling for the German club I was wrestling for and going to all the different tournaments in the different communities, military communities that were in Europe at that time. And the next year I, I'd gotten better. I, I learned more and I had the same guy in the finals the next year. Yeah. And this time, this time I beat him and, and I got the chance to go back and, and try out, uh, and ended up making the team. Yeah, that's awfully cool. I mean, you can see your improvement in, in, you know, a little from just, like you said, getting called to the mat, not even know you're wrestling to make that much jump in the air is pretty impressive for sure. It was a, it was a lot of fun and heck, I, you know, 
I joined the volleyball team at Fort Rucker, Alabama, just to get out of running in formation in boots. So it would have been, Can you jump? Uh, <laughs> Can you jump at all? It's questionable. <laughs> questionable. I guess an Asian shouldn't be asking you if you can jump. <laughs> probably not the probably not the person with the biggest qualifications to be asking that. <laughs> so, well, like you like you said, you went to Oklahoma State, and one of the things that struck me about that as I was preparing for this is you must have seen the world so differently, and you kind of touched on that, like you said that you know your college your normal college years you were serving. But what was that like, being older than your teammates, having such a different perspective, and who were some of your teammates and coaches there? Well, I think, you know, rolling in to Oklahoma State as a freshman at 25 years old with a, with a wife and two children was a unique, you know, a unique situation. And I think in some ways, uh, because I'd already been Olympic alternate in 88, which is what attracted the college coaches to me when they figured out I had four years of eligibility in the first place. Right. <clears throat> Put me in, in a bit of a, a leadership role, even as a freshman, simply because of my age and experience, uh, life experience, not experience in anything else. I mean, I didn't have that much more wrestling experience. I was never in the junior nationals or won any of those, you know, those kind of uh, age school, age group, no titles. I've right. never done any of that. So, uh, but you know, I was an alternate on on the '88 team in for Greco as a soldier, and and uh, so I, I had some experience internationally, and it made you know wasn't until I was again at Oklahoma State <clears throat> until 1990 was when I won my first national title, and I think it was you know I believed I could compete through that that time in the Army, but then I I believed I could win uh, as a cowboy. And uh, I started racking up you know, the accolades and, and those things, and being the number one guy and, and all the other stuff that I'd been chasing for so long uh, while I was wrestling for the Cowboys. Yeah, and I've talked to you. I know you have really, really fond memories of your time there in Stillwater. Who who were some of the guys just, you know, as we're trying to place you in on certain teams, who were some of your teammates and who were the coaches there? Well, the coach was, was Joe Say and Bruce Burnett. Right. Um, and then obviously it was a little bit different back then. We had all these graduate assistants, you know, Eddie Woodburn, Tom Erickson, Kenny Monday, uh, John Smith, all these guys that were either still in the school process or part of the club system, uh, and still around the wrestling room. And so I, I, you know, I think, you know, my mentor and the guy that, that coached me a lot and worked with me individually a lot was Kenny Monday. And, and I mean, you can't really ask for a better, better <laughs> coach and mentor than that guy. Yeah, good but I, call. You know, teammates, yeah. uh, you know, uh, Chris Barnes and, uh, Mike Farrell, uh, Derek Fix, you know, just the, it was a tough room. I, I rolled in there, you know, coming off the 88 Olympic trials as an alternate and rolled into that, that wrestling room in August of, of 1988. And, and I don't think I got a takedown in that room, honestly, until December. Uh, and I was pulling my hair out. I was, I was like, man, I'm not getting better. I'm getting worse. This is ridiculous. I can't, I can't score a takedown. And, and of course, Barnes and Farrell were both good leg riders. They would just torture me in practice. <laughs> uh, but I, you know, trial by fire, you, you get better. 
uh, iron sharpens iron. You know, those guys made me better. They they made me tougher. Uh, and I, it was one of the things that attracted me about going there. I got calls from Southern Illinois and Bakersfield and Clemson and a lot of other programs that were interested in me after the 88 trials, but Oklahoma State, I, I took a visit there and, you know, that there was still a bunch of the guys there getting ready for the 88 Olympics. And, you know, to roll into a room and see Kenny Monday and Mike Sheets going at it. Yeah. You know, Russell, Russell, right off the edge of the mat into the showers and, and are splashing <laughs> around in the, in the, yeah. in the, in the, in the P, in the P trap. Cause neither one of them was going to give up on a takedown. Uh, was pretty amazing. Uh, and, and, you know, being a competitor, knowing what you're looking at and the, the quality and the guys that you're looking at, I mean, that was the place you wanted to be. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's so interesting because your your stuff happened in the opposite order, you know, because, like, you know, I was just at the World Championships or World Team Trials, excuse me. You know, two years ago, you and I watched the World Championships together. We watched the U.S. Open together this year. And now it's really it's almost come back around where some of these guys are making these teams while they're in college. I mean, you made this team before you started college, granted, not as an 18 year old. But, you know, so you had to make this adjustment, I'm assuming. So first of all, you made the you were the Olympic alternate in '88. So I'm guessing somewhere like '86, '87, '88, you were pretty much focusing strictly on Greco. Is that correct? That's right. I, I was one of the few guys that that Coach Winter took to the freestyle nationals to wrestle, but we were very, very focused on Greco and making the Greco team and competing, and and the services in general have have a more of a strong focus on Greco-Roman wrestling. I think it's tough for those guys that a lot of them have just come right out of high school and gone into the service. They they had the luxury of of, a college program and that professional high-level coaching that you get in college that focuses not only on collegiate wrestling but also on freestyle. So it's harder for those guys in the service to compete with those, those young men that are in college Right. when it comes to freestyle. But it was easier for us because of our emphasis on Greco to make an impact and and be competitive in Greco. And uh, I think that, you know, that emphasis feeds the success. The success feeds more of that emphasis. It just, it kind of goes around that way. So you're looking at guys like Greg Gibson and, and I mean, there's been a ton of guys win medals, make world teams and, and do things that came from those service programs. Yeah, yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. That's and and that's also where you became friends with guys like Dan Henderson and people like that, right? The, 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 During that time, uh, well, I was at Oklahoma State, and there weren't a lot of Greco guys on the Cowboy roster, right? Uh, so I started recruiting, uh, and uh, and Kenny Monday was nice enough to to wrestle some Greco matches with me if I'd wrestle freestyle matches with him. <laughs> And, that and, must have uh, been fun for you. I was, <laughs> Go freestyle. I, I, there was there was <laughs> one uh, one particular year we were getting ready for the for the world team trials, you know, and uh, I wrestled a, a Greco match with him, and and he beat me, and then turned around and wrestled a freestyle match, and and I managed to beat him. It was like, and we're both looking at each other like, what the hell just happened? <laughs> what do you think happened, honestly? I mean, that's that's amazing, <laughs> right? Like. I mean, you know, I mean, it was just one of those things. 
Yeah. And it's in the practice room. It's not like it was with a referee and on a, on a mat, but, uh, sure. or, you know, in a match, but it was still one of those things that was pretty funny. But I recruited Dan Niebuhr. Uh, Niebuhr was one of my teammates at Oklahoma State. Uh, yeah. he's a junior college by, guy by, too. Yeah. Yeah. And by his scene, he's a Wisconsin kid and, and a very good wrestler, but he never really wrestled Greco. And I kind of talked him into wrestling Greco. He wasn't really having a lot of success on the freestyle mat. I'm like, dude, I, I know you can make the team, uh, in Greco. If, if I'll, I'll, you know, I need a training partner. Uh, if you'll train with me, I'll, 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 I'll help move you along. And he, he ended up being on the national team for a lot of years after that. Um, but he was one of my only Greco partners in the Cowboy lineup. And then he, his senior year, ended up transferring to Fresno uh, to finish finish out his college career. But uh, we're friends to this day. He wrestled Greco for the national team, was the national champion. And uh, that's how I met Henderson. Because I was training with Niebuhr, and Niebuhr and Henderson ended up wrestling each other in the world team trials. Henderson ended up winning that match and, and ended up on that on that team traveling. Geez, I can't remember where we went somewhere in Europe uh, for a Greco tournament. And uh, Dan was my roommate. Wow. And this was, you know, eighty nine time frame. Yes, you guys have only been mm-hmm. friends like twenty eight years. Not a big deal, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah you know. Yeah, that's how not it goes, right? Cup of coffee. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, my dad knows Niebuhr really well. He coached him on a couple of those junior college national teams, and he—I remember—you know—I was a kid, and he's like, "Man, this guy is a stud." So, yeah, I mean, one of the things you mentioned, I think it's really—if you could touch on this, or maybe just explain your mindset to the younger guys that listen to this—you mentioned not getting a takedown till December in that Oklahoma State room had to be even compounded frustration with you being you know, probably the oldest guy in the room with eligibility and having just been literally the number two guy in our country, albeit with different rules. I mean, it's, you know, not like you were a walk on and thought you were going to get your, your rear end kicked for a while. How did you overcome that? Cause I think that wears a lot of guys out and they just, they can't see the light at the end of the tunnel and get to the other side. Well, I mean, I, I recognize the amazing talent of the guys that I was getting the chance to train with. And I knew that I was, I was in some ways getting better. And yes, it was frustrating because even though they're my buddies and they're my teammates, we're competitive as hell. You still want to score. You still want to take those guys down. And I was still, you know, wrestling in the lineup and winning matches, you know, for, for the team. But when it came to the practice room, I wasn't scoring a point and, and, you know, there, there, you know, at some point, it, it just irks you <laughs> when yeah. you can't take these yeah. guys down and can't score on them. So, I, and, you know, honestly, Bruce Burnett kept me focused, helped me technically and tactically make the changes I needed to. Uh, coming in as a Greco guy, I, I, you know, I wrestled college wrestling like I had my feet in cement. So the first thing he did was hand me a jump rope. And say, yeah, hey, yeah, you're going to jump this 10 minutes every day at the end of practice. Okay, coach. You know, yeah. and I think, you know, learning to be a little more light-footed, learning, learning you know, and, and recognizing the amazing guys I was getting to train with. I mean, Chris Barnes won national title that year and the following year, and nobody scored an offensive point on him for that's those right. two seasons. Yeah, that's right. That's a guy, I mean, that's the guy I'm banging heads with. He was a 177-pounder. 
I was the 190 pounder. Uh, you know, that's the guy I'm banging heads with every single day in the practice room. Uh, Mike Farrell, you know, number one guy in the country that year at 167 pounds. These are the guys I'm in the round robin with, you know, every single day in the, in the practice room. So there is no way you're not getting better rubbing elbows with those guys. It just probably takes a lot of intestinal fortitude. To, I mean, it's a lot easier for me to see you on the sideline and go, hey, hey, man, you're doing good. You're getting better. And you're like, you know, I just got smoked for two hours. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> this has been happening for 10 weeks straight. You know, no, I think that got those walls were padded. Holy hell. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Those are those are rough days. I think a lot of freshmen have gone through what you've gone through. So well, one of the things that. You know, we talked about privately, but I, I really, it's such, it's so interesting to me. If you, if you had, and obviously it's a what if, you don't know for sure, but if you had made the Olympic team or been an Olympic champion, do you think you would have ended up in MMA? No, I've, I've said that several times. I think things worked out the way they were supposed to. Uh, you know, I had several disappointments in my wrestling career. We talk about, the confidence to win on that international stage. I managed to make the finals of the NCAAs on two occasions and both times, you know, managed to come up short and, and lose in the national championship, which is a pretty big deal and, and sure. a very elite small group of guys that win an NCAA championship. Uh, you know, roll into the 92 and 96 trials for, for Greco Roman wrestling and I'm the number one guy you know, in my weight class in our country, most people expect me to to win a medal. I've beaten some medalists and world champions, won a Pan Am Games gold medal, beating the silver medalist to win that. You know, it been right there, knocking on the door, and managed in the 80, 92 and, and 96 trials to come up short to to take second. And and you know, second second in wrestling is one of those pure sports where you know you get a handshake and a bologna sandwich you don't even get a you don't even get a credential to the olympic village you know for taking right. second uh you don't get the march you're lucky, the good stuff yeah if you're lucky and you're a nice guy they, they pick you to, to be on the scrub club and and video <laughs> matches and take notes on the on the number one guy's next opponent <laughs> so i mean it's 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 a humbling experience for sure and I think, that, but that's, you know, that's what keeps you hungry. That's what keeps you working. I think if I'd have won medals in 92 and 96, I would probably still be a college coach somewhere. I would have been content and happy with my competitive career, and I would be coaching in college wrestling somewhere now. Uh, I wasn't happy with how things turned out. I didn't reach the goals I had set for myself, you know, and gone all the way. I'd been on the world team. I'd made the world team on four occasions, uh, placed as high as ninth in the world championships. But even then, you know, I felt like I was capable of placing much higher and doing much better. Sure. And it wasn't until I started fighting uh, and made the transition in 1997 to start fighting that I realized what the biggest issue was for me. And it wasn't so much mental. I, I you know, we've been fortunate to work with a sports psychologist and kind of sort out some of those mental issues that, that tend to hold guys back. For me, it was notoriously overtrained. You know, I would, I would go to the, the last class one 
skied a tournament in Poland with the national team and, and beat the world champion in the finals of that tournament, the Petrosinski tournament, and then eight weeks later roll into the world championships expecting to do well, and I would be two and out. And that same guy I just beat eight weeks ago would be back on the podium getting the medal put around his neck. It was it was frustrating, and I couldn't figure it out. I knew I was doing the work, and and what wasn't what I wasn't accounting for was was getting the proper rest. And Americans in general have this mentality of of going harder and going you know well what what I think especially in Greco what what I think we lack in technique we make up for and a willingness to scrap and uh, yeah to be in shape to come in in condition and be able to push fight, some of these right? other countries. Yeah. You know, farther and harder than they want to work, and um, and I think I was notoriously overtrained. And until I had to temper my wrestler's mentality to fit into fighting, where a fight could last 25 minutes, I didn't realize that I was overtraining and that I wasn't recovered and had my legs under me for for the tournaments, the big tournaments. Yeah, and. I- it, that's such a hard thing to learn, right? That somehow like doing less is more, right? Like, I mean, when you come from that mentality of, look, you know, the only way I'm going to attempt to be Randy is to outwork him. And somebody goes, that's actually not the right, you know, you got to work hard, but you can't, that can't be the sole focus. You know, you got to sleep, you got to taper, you got to do all these things. Yeah. You got to work smarter. And you start looking at, you know, we were notoriously, especially in Greco, chasing the Russians and, you look at what the you know, the Russian Greco team was doing the week of the World Championships. They they were getting on the map, but they weren't going matches. They weren't going hard. They weren't, you know, there was certainly no sprints or any other crazy exercises going on that week. They were literally going through the motions and keeping their tools sharp uh, with as little physical activity as possible, which was exactly the opposite of what we were doing. We were getting in matches and, oh, I got to get my two matches in today and keep, you know, keep this momentum. And, and, and then we wondered why we were a little flat when, yeah. when we rolled into the tournament. Yeah. And, you know, obviously before, you know, I knew you and before we, we had any sort of friendship, you know, I was a fan and, you know, I really, you know, first heard about you, like everybody did just watching MMA. And I know you knew my dad for years on that USA wrestling board, but you always seemed like, a guy that never went in, ever, I don't say in the positive way, every fight you went into, you had a game plan. And was that something that you really started as a fighter or are you kind of a game plan guy back in college and in Greco? You know, wh- when did that really develop and, and, and how did you become so good at those kind of things? It definitely developed in wrestling. Uh, again, I had a, a great uh, assistant coach, Bruce Burnett, was one of the one of the best coaches that, genius, that I've right? been around. Yeah. Uh, we watched tape. We studied opponents. If you lost a match, you were going back and looking at that footage and where you made your mistake and you were you you know who what nationally ranked guy will we wrestle next week? And here here's what we'll, look what he does here. Look what he does there. This is where he's he's out of position. This is where he can be exploited. And it started there, and then it went from there to you know. Bruce Burnett moved up and was coaching the freestyle team uh, for USA Wrestling. Uh, right. He needed somebody to go with him to the Europeans in Turkey to scout the best Europeans 
and who see who's going to win the European Championships because those are the guys we're going to face when we roll into the Worlds. Correct. So we're taking a, taking a video camera and, and a note sheet, sitting in the stands, watching those matches, taking notes on who scored, how they scored, you know, where they seem to falter, where they seem strong, and videotaping those matches with that kind of mentality. <clears throat> that translated, we, we ended up doing that with Tom Minkle uh, for the Greco program as well. And if I wasn't the number one guy, then I was the number two guy that was sitting in the stands being a good workout partner for, for the guy that made the team that year. And I'm looking at, at the bracket and taking notes and videotaping his next potential opponent you know, at the World Championships for the for the tournament, right. who's he going to wrestle next? Who comes through? How did that guy get scored on? How did he score on his opponent to win that match? Where is he seen weak? Where is he seen strong? And 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 how do we go out and, and beat this guy? And right. that mentality uh, and looking at your opponents that way is what carried over into fighting. Uh, my early trainer and coach was Rico Ciparelli. Yeah, um, who was, who yeah. was, who was a very cerebral, uh, wrestler anyway. And, and that's how we approached fights. Uh, so I, you know, I was used to that. And obviously it's a little different too, cause right, like normally you have, you know, eight to 12 weeks to know who you're going to fight versus maybe two hours between the semis and the finals of a tournament. So, you know, the smarter you are, it seems like the bet more time you'd have to put together game plans. Yeah. You know, so, yeah, absolutely. I, I had the luxury in fights to, to really not just have a sense of where my opponent's strong and where he likes to go. He, he always scores with a gut wrench to the right. So you, when sure. if you get put in part there, you need to know this guy's probably going to try and turn you to the right. To be ready. Yeah, you know? right. yeah. but, but you literally have an hour or two, if you're lucky, sure. to, to even think about that. Uh, where in, in fight situations, I've got a 10- or 12-week training camp to really spend some time in situations and sharpen specific tools to deal with my opponent's potential strengths and weaknesses. Yeah, and, and I was going to ask you next, you know, how did wrestling prepare you for MMA and the UFC? And I, I certainly think the mind side of it is you've just laid out. Specifically, though, because you and I have talked about this privately, how relevant do you think your Greco-Roman background was to your fighting success, you know, like the, the difference in stance and, and, you know, clench and all that kind of stuff. Absolutely not something I, re- I realized at first when I, you know, when I jumped into the UFC, I was doing it on a whim because it looked like fun and, and a way to basically make some money and continue to train full time. And it wasn't until I really dug into it and started trying to learn a lot of the other stuff that I realized my Greco background translated perfectly for, for fighting and fight situations. I think the two styles that are, I think, most important for MMA are collegiate-style wrestling because everything is about maintaining position and control of your opponent, and Greco because the posture is very upright and we end up in in infighting, clinch fighting, and, and, and against barriers, solid barriers, and the Greco stuff translates really, really well to those situations. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, a lot of times, you know, literally, like some of these hard-fought Greco matches don't look that different, except they, you know, you get penalized for elbows. Where in MMA, you're encouraged for those elbows. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, 
You know, when when I first started watching the UFC, it was like this this cool underground thing. I remember like Kevin Jackson fighting Frank Shamrock and you know Hoist Gracie against Dan Severn and 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 those guys. It it's so different just from watching it. How different from a guy that's you know been through the whole thing who's you know in the initial Hall of Fame. How different is it today versus when you got into it? it it's it's a lot different. Uh, and, and I think in the last few years, it's it's even changed some more. You know, I've been retired from from fighting now for six years. Obviously, I'm still involved, uh, you know, with Ryan fighting and the, and the team here at Extreme Couture uh, and the various amateur and professional fighters in, in the in the different promotions. But being involved in the sport that way instead of competing, it, it still changed. It's become a lot more corporate than it used to be. Um, and I mean, even to the point where UFC fighters are signing contracts and having to wear uniforms. Uh, right. I mean, it's, it's a lot different. Obviously the fan base is a lot bigger than it was when I started. I mean, we had the weigh-ins for that UFC 13, which was my first show in, in the lobby at the Holiday Inn in Augusta, <laughs> Georgia. And that was the first time I'd seen my opponents. I didn't know who they were or anything about them until we stepped on the scale. Uh, obviously it's a lot different now with cordoning off you know, big arenas and, and you're on the ticker and ESPN and everything else, but the weigh-ins are, are put on TV. Yeah. Uh, it's a lot different animal than it, than it was back then. And there's an upside and a downside to that. Um, I think we're, you know, we're realizing now as fighters that we've been operating in a, in a, a flawed system. I, I've been asked almost my entire fight career, what, what, what's the difference between boxing and MMA and why do these boxers get paid so much money? And I, I never really understood or couldn't answer that question. And, and I think in the last five years, we really started to figure out the flaw in, in, in our sport and the, and the system that's being used in mixed martial arts. Uh, and, and I think there's going to be some, some changes. We're going through some growing pains, uh, being such a fast growing international sport. Uh, and I think there's going to be some, some corrections coming up. Well, you said something. When, so when people ask you this, and you said it took you years to figure out the answer, what is the answer in your mind between, you know, why the boxers are getting paid so much more than fighters? Well, the, the uh, promoter and the sanctioning body in mixed martial arts is the same guy. In boxing, the promoter is a different entity than the sanctioning body. Sanctioning bodies sent rankings and create a title for, for promoters to then negotiate. And in boxing, because of the Ali Act, a lot of boxers represent themselves. They don't have to sign an exclusive contract with a promoter, so they can negotiate their own deal. Why does May Mayweather make $40 million a fight? Because he's representing his own himself as, as the promoter. Right. And he negotiates his value in that fight, whatever fight and title they want him to fight for, and gets the lion's share of the revenue that comes in from that fight. Uh, there's a separation of power in boxing because of the Muhammad Ali Act, and we've been pushing all year to get the Muhammad Ali Act amended to include not just mixed martial arts, but all combative sports. That's awesome. Uh, but, cer but certainly MMA uh, will benefit when they force all these promoters to, to decide, do they want to continue to be a promoter and sign athletes to exclusive contracts, or do they want to be a sanctioning body 
and create rankings and titles and then let the promoters negotiate to fight and fill those those titles. That separation of power gives the athlete a lot more say in the negotiation on who gets paid what and how much revenue from that event you, you get to make. Let's face it, if there were no fighters, there would be no shows. Right. But sure. fighter, educating fighters on this and, and getting them to recognize that we have a voice, that we need to come together and, and exercise that power that we have, we're not at the mercy of, of these promoters, it is a big issue. And it's hard to get guys to see that. They, they, you know, nobody wants to be blackballed. Nobody wants, and certainly that's the kind of tactics that at least the UFC uh, is using to control fighters and, and to keep them in line. Right. Um, yeah, it makes sense. So, and, I mean, but it, you, you have to have this 50,000 foot view to really understand it. I mean, it's very educational because I think most of us just look at it and like we just, you know, we want to see person X fight person Y and, you know, make sure. Yeah. So, well, you mentioned Mayweather and, and, you know, you'd have to be under hiding under a rock to not know that he and McGregor have a fight scheduled. So I think what's interesting is everybody's got their opinion on it, but a lot of people forgot. You fought James Tony in the UFC. I remember watching that fight, watching you hit a low <laughs> single for the first time in I don't know how many years in your life. <laughs> so how is that fight different in terms of your preparation versus the more traditional fights? And, and what's your opinion and prediction for the Mayweather-McGregor fight? Well, the, the James Tony fight is the other side of, of this Mayweather-McGregor fight. Right. Obviously, James Tony talked his way into uh, a high-level mixed martial arts competition. Uh, the question was, how much was he going to be able to learn in his training camp to deal with the other facets of MMA? And, and that was the question I had. I had watched James box for years. I was well aware of his prowess as a, as a world-class boxer. There was no way I was going to stand around in front of that guy and, and test that out, <laughs> uh, especially with a six-ounce six glove. Right. And when you start looking at, okay, well, how am I going to get this guy on the ground? And, and what's he going to do to counter that? How's he going to, is he going to learn a sprawl? Is he going to learn how to play the guard game and protect himself on the ground or learn a submission hold? Um, you know, I, how's he going to catch me coming in? If I set up my traditional takedown and slip a punch to, to a double leg or try to get to the clinch, you know, what are his options? Well, he could try and time me. With a knee or an uppercut, there's a risk there. Uh, he could potentially do that. He's pretty skilled. Uh, well, what if I shoot a low single? I bet he doesn't know how to stop that. And uh, sure enough, uh, he had probably never seen one in his life. Especially from and, you, Randy. Especially from you, yeah, to be fair. Well, <laughs> and it's not, uh, it's not the normal the normal shot that, that an MMA guy is going to take. We're, we're barefoot. Right. You don't have the luxury of a sock and a shoe to create friction and hang on to uh, like we do in a wrestling match uh, where, you know, a, a skinned leg, you know, with, with no friction, yeah. you can step right out of the low single pretty easily if you know what you're doing. And uh, so I got a big smile on my face when I stepped up in the cage and, and looked over at James, and James is wearing – those neoprene footies that uh, kickboxers <laughs> wear a lot. And I'm like, oh, I'm really going to be able to hang on to you. You got a handle, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and I had 
I had trained that low single a bunch in practice. And again, some of the grapplers and some of the more experienced training partners I had, I'd shoot the low single and they would literally step right out of it. Yeah. And I'm laying there, you know, on my hands and knees in front of them, which is not a good place to be. Right. And so I had questions, you know, whether it was going to work. And the more pure striking guys I trained with that, that didn't have any of that grappling or wrestling background didn't know to step out of it and it would work. So I, I had some confidence that, that I was going to be able to take James down with that. Uh, but again, that was James getting into a mixed martial arts fight. The other side of that coin is now we have Conor McGregor, who's talking way more smack than James Tony ever thought of talking, right. uh, has gotten himself into a boxing engagement. The best boxers in the world in the last 10 years haven't been able to touch Floyd Mayweather. Right. I don't think there's any conceivable – well, I mean, I say he's got one chance in 10 of going out there and, and catching Mayweather with something. I think he has two things working in his favor. One, he's long and rangy, uh-huh. uh, a, a little bit taller and longer than Floyd is. And two, he's a mixed martial artist. He's not going to throw things from the same angle in the same way that, that Floyd has spent his life seeing. Yeah. It's, it's unorthodox. It's odd. And you know as well as I do, sometimes you, you wrestle that spazzy guy that doesn't wrestle like everybody right. else. Yeah. And it's really hard to wrestle them. It, you know, it, it's like wrestling Matt Lindland every single day. <laughs> he, get, he just all bone and sinew and everything he does hurts. And it's like, God damn, Matt, would you get off of me? <laughs> and then and it, on top of that, he doesn't take a shower. So, there's, you know, the whole goat factor, effect, you know, comes into play there. So, uh, I think that's what, you know, Floyd's, that's what Floyd's going to get. He's going to get this weird gangly guy that does things differently. His footwork's different. He throws his punches from odd angles and, and odd ways. And he's long. He might be able to reach him. From, and he fights lefty some too, expect. right? Yeah. So, uh, I think that gives Connor a chance. But realistically, he's going to have a lot of trouble even finding Floyd. Floyd yeah. is so quick and slick and defensive. It's, it's, it, it's a, I think a one chance in 10. Now, if this were an MMA engagement like James Tony, I would right? go the other way. Yeah. yeah. I think Mayweather has one chance in 10 that he would catch, you know, McGregor. Right. And honestly, what I hope happens is that, that McGregor gets frustrated after the first round. Mm-hmm. And he just steps out and kicks Floyd Mayweather right in the head. <laughs> I will, I will lose my mind if he just forgets where he's at for a second, throws a high and kick, boots him, boots him in the head, or throws a flying knee and knees him in the. I mean, that will be. I will love it. That will be awesome. <laughs> there might be some mayhem. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he's disqualified. He's still going to get paid. Yeah, that's right. They're making a truckload of money. Yeah, I mean, that's, yeah, it's, it's going to be fun to watch. I've been for crying out loud. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, I've been lucky enough to spend some time with you socially, and I've told you privately that I would love to have your life for one weekend. And I guess what I mean by that is a couple of years ago in the at the World Championships in Vegas, you know, all the best guys in the world were there. And, you know, we're walking by the medalists and the wrestlers from the U.S. and all over the world. And you're the guy that not only the fans, but those guys wanted to get a picture with, a handshake, a quick conversation, selfie, whatever you want to call it. And I've seen you time and time again just accommodate everyone, you know, no matter 
how inconvenient it is to you. I mean, you know, a couple of months ago we had breakfast and five guys stopped you before you had time to pour your coffee. I mean, how how your normal is so abnormal for the rest of us. How hard is it to get used to having such little privacy? And I mean, to this day, you're still your popularity is so massive. You know, how does that make you feel? Well, I mean, it can be a challenge. Timing is timing is certainly everything. You know, and, and it it changed slowly. You know, I remember after the first UFC I fought in, I, I went to to the Costco in in Gresham, Oregon, to to buy food, and I had some guy recognize me in Costco and kind of freak out. He kind of melted down and <laughs> ran up and bought one of those packs of nine Instamatic cameras, so we could rip one of those cameras out and. And we could take a picture in the Costco, and I was, I was just like, I, I was just kind of bewildered. I was like, what the hell is going on? Yeah. And, and it's it just, I don't know if it's anything I'll ever get used to. And it's, I, I, maybe I hope I never do get used to it because, you know, that might show, you know, be a sign of, of something changing in me. But it is still weird to, to be recognized, uh, to get that kind of, of recognition from perfect strangers. Is still always strange to me, but I love people. One of the best things about wrestling and all the things and places that wrestling has taken me is all the different people I've gotten to meet and all the different places I've gotten to go see. And then fighting has just become an extension of that. And obviously I meet a lot more people now than I ever have. It's shifting a little bit, you know, more now with, with acting and being involved in expendables and dancing with the stars brought on a whole new crew of, of fans that, it got exposed to me yeah. a little bit different side of me. It's more, you know, 60-year-old women now than, <laughs> than the 35-year-old men. But uh, <laughs> Mindy probably likes it, that uh, more, so that's good. <laughs> well, she, she gives me she gives me hell about it for sure. But yeah. uh, uh, I just I don't know. I just kind of try to keep things simple. I, I am who I am. I, I've struggled with a lot of the same things that anybody else has struggled with. I've managed to set goals. Uh, failed at some of them, achieved some of them, and and just try to keep it pretty simple. Um, it's I I and I've said this before in speeches. Try to act with humility, and I think that's something our sport breeds. We've all had our butts kicked at one time or another. Yeah. Uh, and, and about the time you think you're cock of the walk and nobody can touch you, you're going to get your ass handed to you. That's just how it works. Yeah. So you're better off to to remain humble, you know, treat everybody as though they they're better at something than you are. And if you're in the right frame of mind and have an open heart about it, you'll you have a chance to learn from that person and figure out what it is they're better at you at and 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 grow. And uh, I just try to approach everything that way. Well, it's, it's so ironic you use that word humility because literally my next note was seeing how you're a role model to so many people in terms of your success and humility. And I mean, I watched, I was four years ago, we took you to my mom's Hall of Fame induction as a surprise and how excited she was. And then I go to just a couple months ago where we were out in Vegas and a guy like Juan Archuleta, you know, told you at the end of the night that you were his hero and that, you know, he modeled his career after you. I mean, it's, it's got to be really touching that people from so many different walks of life, so many different age groups have so much love and respect for you. Well, I certainly appreciate it. It's one of the things I feel like I've enjoyed uh, 
so many fans, certainly in MMA, can be so hot and cold. You know, you're only as good as your last fight or your last competition. And I feel like in keeping it simple and just being who I am, it didn't really matter whether I won or lost. I still seemed to keep the same group of fans that appreciated my approach for the sport. And, uh, you know, I certainly appreciate that. Yeah, for sure. So, well, tell me a little bit about Extreme Couture uh, MMA. I know, you know, I mean, like who trains there? You know, how is coaching different? I know your son's fighting on the huge Bellator card and this we're 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 doing this conversation I think a week literally to the day ahead of that and it'll come out the day that Ryan competes. So, tell me what not only just coaching that gym but, you know, having your son in fighting and being involved in his career. What is what is that like for you? Well, it's been fun. I mean, both as a coach and a father, uh, if, if I looked at an athlete, the way he approaches the sport, his demeanor, his work ethic, his attitude in general, I mean, Ryan is exactly what you'd want and the, the kind of guy you want to be around and, and get behind and work with. He's very coachable. He's a smart kid. He's diligent. He has a genuine passion for the sport. Uh, he does a great job here, not only as an athlete training and, and competing, but as someone who works here as staff in the gym, teaching and all the other things that he does here. Uh, so I, I'm just, I'm very proud of him, happy to be involved in, you know, in his process. Uh, I think it's something we developed when he started wrestling. He started wrestling in Oklahoma at the YMCA at nine and took a little break from it. And when he rolled into junior high school, he, he turned back out for wrestling and wrestled all through junior high and high school. And I knew it was a challenge for him then being involved in a sport that I, I, you know, had some success in and, um, big shoes. To so I, I, I kind of had a talk with him about it. I said, look, I'm more than happy that you're wrestling. Uh, I'm happy to be a part of, of what wrestling is to you, but I don't want to, I don't want to be that guy. I'm going to take a big step back. I'll be a cheerleader. I'll be at every match I can be at. But if you want my advice, if you want, my help in anything, you're going to have to ask me. Otherwise, I'm going to keep my mouth shut. Yeah. You, you've got you've got coaches. You've got people that are in the programs that you're coming through that, you know, I, whether I agree with their approach or not, doesn't matter. Right. Uh, it's not about it's not about me. So uh, that's kind of how we dealt with it in wrestling. And, you know, he went all the way through and he lost one match uh, his senior year. He ended up third in the state. Um probably could have gone to Portland State and wrestled for them, but decided he didn't want to wrestle in college. He would wanted to just focus on school, which I, I respected. Sure. He had the confidence in me to tell me that uh, and know that I wasn't going to freak out about that or push him to do anything he didn't want to do. And So we went to Western Washington. They don't even have wrestling there. And yeah. uh, it was there that, that he started taking jiu-jitsu and, and doing some kickboxing just to get back in shape. He Kind of drank a lot of beer his freshman year and put on the freshman twenty. Uh, maybe it was thirty. I don't know. Those pictures are pretty funny, but uh, uh, but that's what kind of led him into MMA. He got his degree in math and was working for Wells Fargo when I started the gym here in Vegas. And, and you know, me still competing and the rigorous training schedule and everything else that I had going on, I needed somebody here at the gym that I could trust that was going to run things. So. I basically recruited him away from Wells Fargo to come down here and help me run Extreme Tour, and he wasn't here four months. 
And he's like, Dad, I, I really want to fight. And I'm like, oh, man, okay. <laughs> uh, so, you know, we kind of hired a, a gym manager and took that those duties off his back so he could train more regularly. And he started competing in the amateur shows here in Vegas and, and uh, came up through Tough Enough. And, and, and then after about seven amateur fights, he – he jumped into the pros and, and, you know, he's just been off and running. He's had 14 pro fights now. I think he's been fighting about eight, eight years. So, yeah. Um, he does great and I'm excited for him. He, he has a, you know, like, like I said, a, a real passion for it. He, he loves, like I do, what, what we do. And, uh, so, I mean, that's all been fun. Obviously, this is a huge fight for him. Yeah. Uh, he, he really wanted to be on this card in Madison Square Garden, which is an historic place to fight. Right. Uh, he went. He went up a weight class. You know, they had no no opponents for him at 155, which is where he normally fights. So he, he took a fight at 170 uh, with uh, Haim Ghazali, uh, an Israeli uh, kid that that trains with uh, Henzo Gracie, uh, more of a jiu-jitsu fighter. Uh, so I like that style matchup for Ryan. Uh, it's going to be interesting. It's an amazing card from yes. top to bottom, and, yeah. and it's going to be an amazing venue. So uh, we're excited about that. We've got four fighters fighting tomorrow night in the Pack the Mac uh, amateur competition uh, at Thomas and Mac. Uh, Cheyenne and Ryder and a couple of our young amateur fighters, you know, coming through that same program that Ryan came through. Uh, so excited for that tomorrow. We've got, oh, man, a whole list of fighters. Gray Maynard's coming up again. Uh uh, Brad Tavares has got a fight coming up again. We've got a bunch of a bunch of kids fighting all over the country in the next two months. That's awesome. I, I, there's a, just two last things I wanted to touch on with you. First of all, your acting. I mean, I've talked to you privately, and you told me that the transition to acting, you know, was really different from going from wrestling to MMA. And I, I, I don't want to misquote you, but almost that it was humbling that it's you know you're starting all over again at the bottom. So. What are those challenges like? What's that learning process been like? And and what do you got coming up on the acting horizon? Well, it, it was a challenge. You know, I spent almost my entire life since I was ten years old uh, as an athlete. And as athlete, you're you're kind of trained to put your emotions to the side, to kind of box them up, if you will, and and set them aside and go out and compete, not let any of those emotions show or get in the way of doing what you've trained to do. And now, you know, the last 15 or 16 years, I've, I've had the opportunity to act. Athletics kind of opened that door, and I was intrigued by the whole process. But now they want, you know, they want me to let all that stuff hang out. <laughs> and it's, a, it's a little it's a little weird. It's, uh, it, it's taken some time to, to kind of learn how to get in touch with these characters. Uh, I think in some way you have to, to be able to tap into your own stream of experience and tell the truth. The, the character you're playing may do and say all kinds of stuff that you would never say in your real life. Uh, but you have to find a way to relate to, to him and, and tell the truth or it's, or it's going to look like acting and nobody's going to buy it. Um, and that's been hard. That's been fun, interesting, and intriguing. I had a coach about seven years ago that I work with on a regular basis. And, and again, from wrestling, uh, being coachable, listening, being prepared, being diligent, knowing your lines, uh, showing up ready to go, you know, that military thing, hurry up and wait, show up ready to go, be the first one dressed, be one that, that's, you know, Johnny on the spot. 
easy to work with and know your shit. Uh, and, and frankly, I think those are the kinds of people that people want to work with. So you, easier to hire. And, uh, that whole thing has been, it's been fun and interesting. Uh, um, excited that the greenlit expendables four, not sure when we're going to start now, but, uh, it, uh, it, it it's definitely coming up. We're going to get to film another Expendables, which nice. is an amazing group of guys to get to work with. Uh, got a, a film that has some wrestling in the backdrop and, and is a really cool story that uh, I've been championing and trying to produce and and hopefully get get done this this summer, late this summer or early fall, called Rust Belt. Okay. And I think uh, certainly the wrestling community is going to like this film. Nice. Uh, I would I would liken it to uh to a Rocky type story, uh, but with wrestling and, and a little bit of MMA instead of boxing. Awesome. Um, and then uh my girlfriend Mindy has written a script that I'm I'm I really, really like and I I pitched to a uh a producer that I know and, and he liked it as well and so it looks like we have funding, we're trying to, to get all our ducks in a row in pre production and try and get that one started here too all of that hopefully happening before uh we start shooting expendables four sometime here in the next six months so i got another episode of hawaii 5.0 coming up in july we'll film that i'm not sure when this next season that one will air but my character is still alive there <laughs> the crazy the crazy arsonist i get to play jason duclair so my mom yeah, calls that's me every time that's on, and it seems like every time you're supposed to die, and you're like a cat with nine lives on that one. <laughs> so. Yeah, when well, I've got friends that that call me, they're like, "Oh my god, you creep me out so bad! How could you burn those people?" <laughs> it's an act. It's a job, right? <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, well, the last thing I want to give you a chance to talk about is your foundation, um, the Extreme Couture GI Foundation. I know the answers to these questions, but I want you to tell people what is it, why did you start it. Um, definitely want to give you a shout out or let you shout out the people that help you run it, who gets the money you raise, and how can people support the foundation if they want to make a donation or a contribution. Well, as we've talked about already, I, I spent six years in the United States Army, awarded uniforms from 1982 to 1988, and now obviously over 20 years after that experience. Uh, since 9/11, we've had a you know, significant war going on in the Middle East, uh, and I've had the, had the opportunity in 2006 to go to Iraq and spend 12 days on the ground there with a bunch of our troops that were fighting and living in, in a pretty desolate, pretty amazingly hot place, uh, and see what they were going through. I came back the next year and, and had the chance to go to, to uh, Washington D.C. to Walter Reed and Bethesda hospitals and, and walk through the wards and meet a bunch of the families and a bunch of the guys that were fresh off the battlefield, having been wounded, getting fitted for prosthetics and going through surgeries to get themselves straightened out again while they were in transition to, to being civilians again in, in our society, meeting their families, meeting their moms, their wives, their dads. We put on a barbecue at the Fisher House uh, at Walter Reed, which is kind of the same as the Ronald McDonald House in the civilian world. Right. Takes care of families and their family members while their while their loved ones are are in the hospital. And uh, it was that experience that was a real eye eye opener for me. I heard a lot of horror stories about the financial hole that many of these folks dig for themselves while they're in this transition. They can't exactly go back out and get a job. 
a lot of them have their mom or their wife uh, spending a, a significant amount of time helping them through the process who, who creates a, a pretty big financial burden for them. So we set about uh, find, founding the Extreme Couture GI Foundation. It's a 501c3 nonprofit organization. And it literally started with my gym and gym staff and, and the family and friends here uh, putting on small events and trying to raise not only awareness about what these folks are going through and the sacrifices they've made, but raise some money that we could then put in their pocket to take that burden off of them. And uh, I have nobody in my foundation gets paid. Uh, the only expense is what these events cost us to put on. And you know how that is, Dave, because you've spent uh, a significant amount of time helping me put on a couple of events in the St. Louis area, most notably the border brawl uh, with, with, you know, the NCAA championships every year and putting on a very cool boutique high school dual meet format with some of the best wrestlers from the five state area there in, in Missouri. Right. And, and it's been fun to be involved in that and it's raised some great money for the foundation. Uh, we're coming off the best year we've had in the nine years I've been running the foundation. Uh, a large part of that is due to guys like you who've helped us raise 10 or $15,000 through, through those events like the border brawl and affliction. My, my manufacturing and distribution partner with extreme couture clothing, uh, through, through much prodding and urging for me, uh, started a new line of shirts called the Freedom Defender series. Yeah. It's all those. military, military themed shirts. A portion of the proceeds from every shirt go to the foundation and, uh, they're selling like hotcakes in the buckle, uh, and uh, doing doing very very well. So this year I got to go out to to Walter Reed and Bethesda, which I do every year. And whatever money I raise, we give away. And we got to sit down with 13 families and write 13 ten thousand dollar checks to you know uh, check to each one of those families this last year. Uh, so I'm you know obviously setting goals and hopefully going to get to sit down with 20 families next year. Nice. Uh, we just keep getting traction. And keep getting a little bit bigger, and and there's I think a benefit to being small, yeah. uh, and again keeping overhead down and and not paying anybody. All all my friends and family volunteer and 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 help us do these things. So uh, you, you can find us at xcgif.org. You can donate online or figure out where our next uh, event is going to be and come help us out. Come hang out. Uh, we get a lot of vets and a lot of folks that both vol volunteer and and join in at these events. So it's been a blast. Yeah. And I want to give a shout out to Val Haney, who is basically yeah. your right hand person over there. She, she's a stud. She reminds me a lot of my mom and just a goer and gets stuff done and really passionate about the work you guys do. And, uh, so yeah, folks, it's xcgif.org. And if people just want to contribute a different way, they can go to the buckle and buy one of your shirts, right? Absolutely. Yes. The stickers, Right on the on the front of the shirt, uh, with the foundation name and and website on it, and a portion of every shirt goes goes to the foundation to help these guys and gals out. That's awesome, and you know I'm I'm proud to to do our our small part with the border brawls and people people love the event because of where the money's going, so it, it makes it a lot easier to do. So, well, Randy. I, I just can't thank you enough for taking the time to be with me today. Um, I'm, I'm lucky to know you as a friend, but you know, obviously were a great wrestler, a Hall of Fame fighter, but in my mind, you're just an even better person. So 
I want to wish you the best of luck for your guys fighting this weekend and, and truly all the best to Ryan next weekend at Bellator. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it, man. Ladies and gentlemen, that was the great Randy Couture. I'm David Maricatani. Speak to you all next week. This show is part of the Matt Talk Podcast Network. For more wrestling podcasts, head over to matttalkonline.com.